The Curbsiders Podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. Furthermore, the views statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of those and should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity, aside from possibly catch more hospital and affiliate outreach programs, if indeed there are any. In fact, there are none. Pretty much, we are responsible if you screw up. You should always do your own homework and let us know if we're wrong. Welcome back to the Curbsiders. Tonight, we're going to be talking about monkeypox with returning guest, Dr. Bahuma Tatanji. I'm Dr. Matthew Frank Watto, here with America's primary care doctor, <laughs> Paul Williams. Uh, it's not going <laughs> to Thought change. I was going to forget about that, didn't you, Paul? I'm trying yeah. to make it stick. You're going to be the only person who remembers it, but God bless and good luck. <laughs> All right, audience. Uh, you know, on social, please hashtag uh, Paul Williams, hashtag America's primary care doctor whenever you refer to Paul Williams. And uh, Paul, will you tell the audience, what is it that we generally do on the Curbsiders? Sure, Matt. Generally, and actually specifically tonight, we are the Internal Medicine Podcast, and we use expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice changing knowledge. Um, I'm just going to get right into it. Tonight, we have, as you say, the great Dr. Bahumo Tatanji, who talked to us all about monkeypox, how to recognize it, how to have a, a low threshold to worry about it, sort of how to do the testing, um, fundamental management principles, just kind of all the stuff that I think the basic internist would actually need to know um, to be equipped to kind of manage something that you are almost certainly going to see. So it's it may feel a little bit niche right now, but it just sounds like the way things are progressing, it's something you're probably going to see in your primary care practices. So I, I, I personally found this to be an extraordinarily helpful episode. Um, to remind you, she's been on the show, I think we said 17 times before, it may have been four, <laughs> but Dr. Tadanji is a Cameroonian-born physician scientist. Uh, she's at Emory University in Atlanta right now. She obtained her MD from the University of Yaoundé, uh, and I apologize if I mispronounced that, in Cameroon, and worked for two years after graduation as a medical officer before pursuing postgraduate research training in London, United Kingdom. As an awardee of the prestigious Commonwealth Scholarship Program, she obtained a master's degree in tropical medicine and international health from the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, a diploma in tropical medicine and hygiene from the Royal College of Physicians in London, and a PhD in virology from the University College of London, just in case you were feeling a little bit accomplished, just compare your accomplishments to her, and that should take you back down to size. <laughs> Um, Dr. Tadanji joined Emory um, in 2016 as a resident in internal medicine on the ABIM research pathway. She is currently an assistant professor of medicine and has four parallel career interests. She is interested in translational and clinical HIV research. She is interested in science communication. Uh, she is interested in emerging infectious diseases and global health advocacy. Her clinical focus is specifically people living with HIV and her current research um, she just tells us that she actually just did a grand rounds on this week and we benefited from her research and expertise, um, all about monkeypox for this episode. So I, Matt, I'm going to peel back the curtain. You told me that you have a pun for, so I, I'm just going to sit anxiously and await it. Well, Paul, you know, uh, they're, they've been doing some work on my house, uh, specifically, uh, you know, the roof, they got to look up at the roof and, uh, I, I've concluded after discussing with the contractor that my house has probably had chicken pox, Paul. Do you know why? No. Because, Paul, you know, getting a look at the roof, uh, it had shingles. So it must have had chicken pox at some point. Got great. Um, <laughs> do you know why they called it a chicken coop, Matt? Uh, why is it called a chicken coop, Paul? Because if it had four doors, it would be a chicken sedan. And sorry, where did you can source your joke now. <laughs> <laughs> uh, thank you to 9unstoppablepuns.com for that, uh, poxpuns.com for that, that uh, <laughs> shingles joke. And uh, let's get on with it. 
Okay, a reminder that this and most episodes are available for CME through VCU Health at curbsiders.vcuhealth.org. <laughs> Bahuma, so excited to have you back. Is this the fourth time now? This is it's the at least fourth. the third. Maybe I, <laughs> fourth, <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, welcome back. Remind the audience, uh, for, the, for the audience members that don't know you, tell them a little bit about yourself, maybe a hobby or interest you have outside of medicine. I know you have many. Yeah, I, I really love to cook Cameroonian food. So uh, when I don't want to talk about infectious diseases, for example, when I go to the hairdressers and they ask me what I do for a living, I am a personal chef, which is not technically not <laughs> lying because I cook a lot for myself and I enjoy it. And so that's one of my hobbies. Fantastic. And Paul, anything you want to ask? I mean, we, uh, we're going to get, we're going to get right into it talking about monkeypox, but anything you wanted to ask before that time? This is a very specific question, but since you mentioned Cameroonian food, is there a particular cookbook or sort of source that you would recommend if someone who has no familiarity with it would like to learn more about it? I'm trying to talk my mother into writing a cookbook because she's, uh, the best Cameroonian cook I know. Unfortunately, there are no, um, Cameroonian cookbooks out on Amazon that I can recommend, but there is actually a very good Cameroonian food blogger who has excellent recipes, and I think people can check out Immaculate Bites to, to see some Cameroonian question, uh, recipes. Paul. Yeah. Thank you. Sounds like there's a market for your mom to become a <laughs> celebrity chef. <laughs> uh, Paul, did you want to give a quick pick of the week before we get into before we get into the the main topic here? Sure, always happy to. I I feel like if you follow me on Twitter, and there's no reason to do that, like you probably have a sense of the things I'm excited about. But I I just discovered a band that's been around for a while. Matt, have you have you listened to Sleigh Bells at all? Are you familiar with them? I think I actually yeah, I think I actually have heard. Unless yeah, they, I'm thinking of a song, Sleigh Bells. It's not but the no, Christmas yeah, song. I think yeah, I have. It's not the one with the horses <laughs> and, the, and the, the clop clop sounds. Like it's it's a duo out of Brooklyn, um, and I I just happened to stumble across their 2012 album Reign of Terror, and they're described. I think Wikipedia describes them as noise pop, but they're it's like these metal guitars and just like these thumping drums and sort of these ethereal vocals. It's just it's danceable and singalongable too, and just it's my absolute new favorite. The song Demons, like I I can't think of a song I like better right now. So if you're if you're not familiar, I would recommend checking out the band Sleigh Bells and the album Reign of Terror from 2012. Yeah, I think Spotify has fed me some of their songs on uh, one of those playlists they make for you. So, yes, thank you, Paul. As always, and I, I appreciate your recommendations. I actually think I will like this one. I think this maybe is, so. This yeah. sounds good. Sometimes your re sometimes your recommendations terrify me. <laughs> you're recommending <laughs> yeah, appropriately. Yeah, what was a movie you recommended recently? Naked Lunch. I'm not going to watch that. That's I, not going to. Terrific. This episode is sponsored by Green Chef. Wow, Green Chef has been a sponsor for a long time, and there's a reason, and that's because Paul and I, we both love Green Chef. They have great recipes. Now they have 30 recipes every week, and you can even mix and match meals from different dietary preferences in the same box, because that's right. Green Chef has options for every lifestyle. If you're keto, paleo, vegan, vegetarian, if you want fast and fit, Oh, what's Fast and Fit? Fast and Fit, these meals are under 700 calories and they're ready in 25 minutes or less. Now they even have these 10-minute lunches, no cooking required. It's a great way to make a healthy lunch on the go. As I've said before, I love Green Chef because it makes me feel like I actually know what I'm doing in the kitchen and it's fun to prepare these meals with my kids. We love Green Chef. 
Go to greenchef.com slash curb135 and use code curb135 to get $135 off across five boxes and your first box ships free. That's greenchef.com slash curb135 and use code curb135 to get $135 off across five boxes and your first box shipping free. All right, let's, let's get into a case here, Paul. Sure. So, who am I? Happy to talk to you about Mr. S. Um, he is a 41-year-old gentleman who presents to your primary care office for the evaluation of a genital lesion. Uh, his medical history is noteworthy for HIV on ART, and his viral load has been undetectable for years. He states that he initially noted this red spot on his penis approximately five days ago, and this eventually developed into something that looked kind of like a pimple. Maybe it had some fluid in it, kind of hard to tell. Um, but he does note that the lesion is extraordinarily painful, and he's worried that he might have an STI. He has been sexually active with four male partners over the past month, and he endorses intermittent condom usage. He does have a prior diagnosis of chlamydia approximately five months ago. He's not aware of any STIs in his recent partners. Um, but because you are a good doctor and because you've been paying attention to the news, you are obviously potentially concerned for monkeypox. So before before we get into the case and sort of what your workup would look like and if we even should be concerned, I, I would love if you could sort of start us, just talk us through basic virology of monkeypox that we actually need to know to, to kind of get started here. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, monkeypox is a DNA virus. It's of the genus of viruses known as orthopox viruses, and it's a close cousin to the more well-known uh, smallpox virus that was caused smallpox that was caused by variola virus, which is now eradicated. And uh, monkeypox for a long time has been um, well established to cause human infections. Was first noted to cause human infections in the early 70s in the Democratic Republic of Congo and has circulated in Western Central Africa since that time. And it wasn't until recently that we had an explosion of cases and we're currently in a global outbreak of uh, monkeypox. So that is uh, just the gist of the, the pathogen and some, some a little bit about its origins. It, it seemed like the way... I was trying to get a sense of like, why were we initially so alarmed about this? Was there something about the way that we started finding cases that made this so alarming early on when there was still like a really small number of cases? Yeah, I think it was mainly the patterns uh, along which the cases started appearing. Remember I said that uh, monkeypox has been a known pathogen that causes human disease and is a zoonotic pathogen that circulates in an endemic fashion in countries in West and Central Africa. And for many years, a, a lot of the outbreaks that have happened in that part of the world primarily happened when you had zoonotic exposure to either animal reservoirs or animals that were infected with the virus. And humans came in contact with these animals either through hunting or manipulating the animals or just living in close proximity with you know, the natural flora in forested parts of, of, of Africa. And when you had introduction into human populations, you had very restricted outbreaks, primarily in household contacts of whoever the index case was. Now, when the outbreaks were noted 
happening across Europe. The first cases in the current outbreak were noted in the United Kingdom, and they seem to be clustering in people who had no contact to travel linking them to an endemic uh, country. So the question obviously arose, these are people who had not traveled to West or Central Africa where we know that this virus circulates. How were they coming in contact um, with the virus and why were they seeing cases in people that also didn't really seem to be connected to each other in any way. So cases started popping out in the United Kingdom, in Spain, and across Europe. So it was the manner in which the cases were spreading. It was the fact that the cases were happening outside of an endemic region. And it was also the fact that they started making connections between the cases, linking them to sexual networks, which seemed to suggest that the virus may be spreading in a new way um, that we had not noted it to spread before. So all of these factors were a different pattern of behavior for a zoonotic virus infection, which of course raises the question of, has it adapted? Is it spreading better between humans? Or is this just the result of multiple introductions into networks that are somehow facilitating the transmission of this virus? And yeah, Paul, are you confused after reading? Do you understand how it's transmitted. I, I mean, obviously skin-to-skin contact, but beyond that, I feel like I'm a little bit confused. This, yeah, that was my exact follow-up question. Is, yeah, so what, what do we think is happening with transmission at this point? What's our best guess? Well, let's start from what we knew about the transmission of monkeypox prior to the current outbreaks. Monkeypox is a virus that doesn't transmit very efficiently from person to person. That we kind of know from the multiple outbreaks that have happened in endemic countries through the the years, through the, the last five decades that we've known that this virus is capable of infecting humans. However, the way in which transmission has been described Human-to-human transmission really requires prolonged skin-to-skin contact. That appears to be the most uh, favorable uh, mode of transmission. But the virus can also be transmitted through contaminated inanimate materials or objects that have been utilized by individuals who have active lesions of monkeypox. And I'm thinking specifically clothing, bedding. If you have prolonged contact with that, that also has been well described as a way in which the virus can be transmitted. To a much lesser degree, airborne transmission and droplet transmission are possible routes of transmission, but very much thought to not be the most efficient modes of transmission. And when you think about droplet and airborne transmission, you're really thinking about um, uh, spaces that are not well ventilated, where people are kind of in crowded spaces and in contact with uh, someone who is an index case of monkeypox or who has active lesions of monkeypox for a prolonged amount of time for that to be a viable mechanism of transmission. Now, what is unusual with the current outbreak is, like I mentioned before, we're seeing clustering in sexual networks. And what that really amounts to is that sex in itself facilitates the type of close and intimate contacts that would essentially make it easy for a virus that requires close contact to be transmitted. So I, I want to, a couple, that's all in, incredibly helpful, uh, but a couple questions 
In terms of the respiratory transmission, you mentioned sort of prolonged exposure. You know, I, as soon as you described the situation of what happened, I immediately thought of a clinic waiting room where people were sort of packed in, um, sort of like sardines at, at the busiest times. Uh, so that obviously was a little bit nerve wracking. But like, how, how long an exposure are we talking about? And sort of what situations where we typically see the possibility of respiratory transmission? We're talking about hours. So we're talking about two to three hours of sort of that exposure and sharing the same air in a clustered um, or, or, or enclosed space with someone who has to be highly infectious at the time when uh, that exposure is happening. So I would not um, uh, worry too much about casual um, uh, or short-lived uh, contact, face-to-face -face contact with someone who was infectious. Technically, it is possible, but that is not the most efficient mode of transmission of this virus. Do you, do you think the PPE is going to be scaled back? Because right now, you're, it sounds like it's the full and what they call enhanced droplet, the, the face shield, the KN95, N95, and the gown gloves. Do you think that'll ever be, ever be scaled back as we learn more about this? Because right now, I, I was just thinking that it seems like it's it's a lot first if you're just going in brief encounters with the patient. Well, then I'll give you some perspective of what it looks like to actually manage cases of monkeypox in Western Central Africa where PPE is actually scarce. So here we obviously have the full PPE, as you mentioned, with the N95 and the face shields and the gloves and the gowns. But in clinics in West Africa and in Central Africa, where they see this in an endemic fashion, this is not usually available. And a gown and gloves are pretty much sufficient if all you're doing is examining the patient, making your diagnosis and then probably discharging them home. But if you have that PPE available, you should definitely use it, right? Because oftentimes people are not using this because they don't have it available. But I'm just mentioning that, that just to highlight the fact that even when people do not have access to um, all the PPE that may be available in more resourced uh, settings, you're not seeing massive nosocomial transmission of monkeypox just because individuals are not wearing uh, full PPE. Really, it is a virus that transmits through prolonged skin-to-skin -skin contact. So I really want providers who are listening to this to feel really comfortable with knowing that if they're wearing their gown and they're wearing um, a uh, droplet uh, uh, protection and they have gloves on, they should feel fully confident to go ahead, examine these patients, collect swabs without worrying that they would get infected themselves. And before we move on from, from transmission, I, I was wondering what the current thinking is about transmission through sexual fluids. Like it, it sounds like the you know, part of the sexual part of the skin-to-skin -skin contact that, that comes along with sexual encounters is sort of the, the going theory. But in terms of fluid transmission, I feel like there's sort of varying opinions about that. I'm just wondering sort of what the current state of thought is in terms of that as a mode of transmission. And, and there is actually emerging literature that's helping us sort of clarify what the state of that is. Uh, we now know that uh, monkeypox virus has been detected in the semen of individuals who had a diagnosis for monkeypox. There's actually been a published paper in The Lancet that looked at a patient up to 19 days out of their initial presentation with monkeypox, and they found virus that was isolated from that patient's um, semen that 
also was able to cause infection of cells in vitro in the lab. So that would mean that the virus that was isolated was viable to infect cells. That tells you that that semen is infectious. And it is for this reason that as a measure of precaution, the WHO now recommends that in individuals who have recovered from monkeypox, that they continue to use barrier protection, such as condoms, for up to three months after recovery. Oh, wow. And I'm sure that we oh, will have more data emerge to fully characterize for how long virus is, is viable in semen. But for right now, we do not know. And that's an area that we need to gain better understanding on because it has implications for seeding new transmission chains and for onward transmission um, in an asymptomatic patient who's recovered but may still be carrying virus in their, in their semen or in their bodily fluids. It's interesting because I'm sure Paul gets this question all the time too. When you when you have patients with with the COVID pandemic, patients were always asking, "How do I know if I'm no longer infectious?" And I would just be like, "Well, we kind of just at, at ten days we <laughs> say you're probably not infectious. Uh, if you're still really sick, consider yourself still infectious and go another ten days." But like you know, I think it's hard for people to wrap their head around the fact that we're as advanced as we are, we still like don't have that quite down yet to say who's infectious and who's not. If we did, it would be super convenient, right? Um, right. A lot of people don't realize that that virus has followed the lunar calendar. Like that's, I think, an important thing that we don't really uh, <laughs> describe well enough. Yeah, but I, I would also want to, to add to that that um, other studies have also shown that the, the peak or kind of the lesions that shed the most virus are the cutaneous lesions. That's really where a lot of the virus is being isolated from. And in patients who have been sampled from their oropharynx as well as sampled from their rectum and sampled from their skin, skin lesions, it's really those active skin lesions that are very infectious. And what I do tell patients is that you are less infectious or you are less of a risk to pass this on when your skin has fully healed and there's a new layer of healthy skin over those skin lesions. And the whole guidance about continuing to use condoms is an extra measure of precaution until we know fully whether this virus persists in the semen for any length of time for you to be able to pass it on to your sexual partners. And we don't know about reinfection yet either, I imagine, right? We do not know about reinfection yet. That is correct. So maybe uh, maybe we can move on to the next part of this case, Paul, because uh, I, I did have some, I wanted to kind of get into the presentation and I, I do want to talk about how we're going to collect for this patient that we have here, how are we going to actually test them? Because that's something that I haven't seen uh, at least I don't think I've seen anybody with monkeypox yet. And I, when I do, I need to know how to collect the sample. Before we get there, Matt, is it, do you mind if I actually ask about sort of pretest probability? I would like to know, like, who especially should I be worried about? So if someone's presenting, like, for instance, our patient is someone who um, we obviously built some potential risk factors into the case. So I, I think before we get to what it looks like and sort of how to test, Matt, do you mind if we sort of just talk about sort of background risk factors and 
when you described the case, you actually highlighted some risk factors that I think it's very important for providers to think about. Uh, the patient in this case had had multiple sexual exposures in the month leading up to his symptoms. It's a patient who has had a history of having sexually transmissible infections, which to me as a clinician simply tells me this is someone who's having a lot of sex. And then thirdly, they're not using protection consistently. And all of these factors raise in my mind um, a risk for does this patient present with a sexually transmissible infection. So running the differential through my mind, I'm obviously thinking about syphilis, I'm thinking about herpes, I'm thinking about monkeypox because we are in the midst of an outbreak. And one of the emerging features that has come out as we learn more about the epidemiology of the ongoing outbreak is that because it is transmitted through sexual contact as one of the main mechanisms of transmission in the current outbreak, we are seeing it track very closely with other sexually transmissible infections. And actually, in the cohorts that have reported on monkeypox cases in Europe and in North America, about 20 to 30 percent of individuals who test positive for monkeypox also have a concomitant positive test for another sexually transmissible infection. So that is how I'm sort of approaching this case, already thinking that on my list of differential besides monkeypox, you're going to have a lot of other STIs on that list as well. And mechanistically, is there some sort of synergy there or is it just the shared risk factors that you're seeing sort of concomitant sexually transmitted infections? I think that uh, to, a, to a great extent, it is a, sh a a question of shared risk factors. So again, um, people with the opportunity and the exposure to come in contact with sexually transmissible infections and who have shared sexual networks tend to be the individuals that we are seeing um, uh, present with monkeypox. And I, I also think that it is important to highlight um, emerging higher risk group individuals that we are noting in the ongoing outbreak. 98% of the cases of the over 62,000 cases that have been recorded in the ongoing outbreak have been in men who have sex with men. And this is a reflection of shared social and sexual networks. And I think that it is important for providers to be aware of this, not to stigmatize, but to make sure that we are offering the appropriate kind of testing based on an individual's risk profile. And in addition to that, I would also want to say that Although the higher risk group right now and the concentration of cases has been among MSM, the outbreak is not only happening among, among MSM. And we are also seeing cases in heterosexual networks from individuals who have reported their, their exposure as being sexual contact. So if you have someone who has risk factors for a sexually transmissible infection, you really should be including monkeypox on your list of differentials if you're considering some of the more uh, common uh, sexually transmissible infections as well. Why don't I recap a little bit, Paul, and then we'll we'll move on with it. So what we said was monkeypox, since the 1970s, it's been around. What piqued the interest this time is that it started to um, 
usually there was clear like exposure to an animal and it would it would spread in households but now this this time it was popping up and it was in these networks of people uh and it there wasn't that clear exposure and it didn't seem to be like burning itself out the way it sounds like prior prior outbreaks had where it was just a couple isolated cases and then um we think that you should wear full PPE, the the face shield, N95 mask if you have it, a gown and gloves at the bare minimum, because we do think there may be some respiratory or even um, dro- like aerosol droplet spread of this. But we know the primary mechanism is skin to skin contact, and if you just have to be prolonged close exposure to somebody else, maybe even on the order of hours, um, and and then the pretest probability right now. Um, it's in a, a lot of it is in the men having sex with men community, but we we have seen it start to spread to heterosexual groups as well, and we do expect that this will uh, start to um, be be we'll start to see cases outside of those initial communities where we were seeing it. Anything to modify there? I I, I probably bit off more than I could chew with that recap. <laughs> I think you 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 captured a lot of the the salient uh, features of the epidemiology of what we know about monkeypox in the current outbreak so far. This episode is sponsored by Med Mastery. And audience, you've heard us talk about Med Mastery before. They are the award-winning online learning platform that's endorsed by the British Medical Association, and they offer courses on super practical things like echocardiography, how to interpret chest x-rays, PFTs, fluids and electrolytes. All their courses are taught by amazing educators, even the great Dr. Joel Toff. All their courses are peer-reviewed and CME accredited, and they're great for family medicine, emergency medicine, internal medicine, and if you're a residency program and you want a group subscription, reach out to the friendly folks at MedMastery. They'd be happy to accommodate you. Their courses have these short video lessons. There's pre- and post-tests. They're very well done. Listeners of this show can claim a discount on any of their subscriptions. Just go to www.medmastery.com curbsiders to claim your discount. Again, that's www.medmastery.com curbsiders. Okay, so Paul, let's let's go to the next part of the case. All right, so what, well, we decided to take more history again because we're very good doctors, and and Mr. S tells us that he feels <laughs> he felt pretty awful four days before he even noticed the lesion on his penis. So in fact, he actually he felt kind of feverish. He felt achy. Um, he didn't take his temperature. It was a subjective fever, and he's just been feeling tired, tired and washed out lately. He's not had any penile discharge. He's not noticed a rash anywhere else. He does not have any proctitis or diarrhea or oral lesions or, or anything else. It really is just sort of solitary lesion that he's experiencing right now. When you examine him, he has these two solitary papulopustular lesions on the gland's penis. Uh, and because we're doing a very thorough examination, we also note bilateral inguinal lymphadenopathy as well. Um, and there are no other anogenital lesions that we've noted. So I'm wondering, again, as we're considering monkeypox, is this a fairly typical presentation or could you at least sort of talk us through the spectrum of presentations we might be seeing in our, in our offices? I think the approach that I would like uh, to sort of address this is to talk about the spectrum of presentations, because that's one of the key features that's emerging um, in this outbreak. And I think that it's very important that providers be aware of what that spectrum is, because we're seeing a lot of diagnosis missed because people are not thinking about it and are thinking about all the classical textbook presentation of what monkeypox should look like. So starting from what 
monkeypox should look like and what we know about monkeypox from previous outbreaks, generally people have presented with a prodromal phase where they have fevers and sort of nonspecific flu-like symptoms with muscle aches and, and pains and maybe just generalized fatigue preceding um, the emergence of the rash. So, and the incubation period from the initial exposure to you sort of beginning to develop some of these prodromal per- uh, symptoms has been anywhere between 5 to 17 days, even up to 21 days historically. And after that prodromal phase, individuals start to present with a rash. And the rash evolves in five phases. So it initially starts out as a macule and then progressively becomes a little more um, sort of a vesicular, uh, papular, and then evolves into kind of more what looks like a postule with that classic central umbilication that is quite distinctive for orthopox viruses. And as that postule Um, sort of erodes, it forms some sort of like an ulceration and then ultimately scabs over and heals and then that scab sloughs off. So these are the classical five phases of sort of the development of the rash and the rash can last anywhere between two weeks up until four weeks for it to fully heal. Now, uh, in terms of what has been the distinguishing features in the past to sort of say, for instance, distinguish between the exanthem that you get with monkeypox and, for example, what you would expect with chickenpox, which is a common differential or another viral exanthem with which this could be confused. Monkeypox uh, uh, lesions were typically thought to be all in the same phase of development. So if an individual presented with a rash it would tend to all be in the papular phase or all be in the vesicular phase or all be kind of at the healing phase. Also, individuals with monkeypox traditionally were thought to present with lymphadenopathy, which you don't usually see with chickenpox. So lymphadenopathy was considered one of the more distinguishing uh, features and the rash tended to be a lot more generalized. So this is what you would see if you were to open up an infectious diseases textbook and read about the presentation of monkeypox. How does the presentation of monkeypox in the ongoing outbreak differ? What we have seen is actually a shortening of the incubation period. And really right now, the incubation period is anywhere between five to up to 12 days with a median of about seven days before individuals start presenting a rash. The prodrome is not always present. A lot of people are posse-symptomatic and they would tell you, I didn't feel any flu-like symptoms, I didn't have a headache, I didn't have a fever, and they just present because they have a rash. We are also seeing people present with singular lesions. So in the case that we're discussing at uh, the clinic, this patient presented with isolated genital lesions, two genital lesions, uh, as opposed to a more generalized rash. In individuals who, who don't present with any rash, we've also had cases of just proctitis, so individuals presenting with rectal pain and tenesmus and no rash and getting treated for hemorrhoids and rectal abscesses with no one thinking to collect a sample Uh. for monkeypox. And then the last feature that I think it's very important is also isolated pharyngeal presentations, presenting 
with just a sore throat, a severe sore throat, negative for strep throat, and you can't figure out why this person has such a sore throat that they can't swallow anything. You get a sample, you test it, and they come back positive for monkeypox. And I highlight these features because one of the things that has also emerged as we learn about the epidemiology and the clinical presentation in the ongoing outbreak is the fact that the symptomatology also appears to track with the sort of sexual exposure that people are reporting. So in individuals who are reporting unprotected oral sexual exposure, they are presenting more with oral and pharyngeal lesions, whereas individuals who may be reporting receptive unprotected anal sex are more likely to be presenting with proctitis lesions. So really important to ask the history and think about that diagnosis even if, you know, the patient doesn't have the classic textbook presentation that you would expect for what you knew about monkeypox. And in terms of the, the cutaneous lesions, the rash specifically, is, the, is it typically described as pruritic? Is it painful? How are patients actually describing the symptoms that come along with the appearance? It is a mixture of both. So it can be intensely itchy depending on what phase of development the rash is, it starts getting itchy kind of in the more papular and sort of ulcerative uh, phase. When parts of it are beginning to heal, it gets really intensely pruritic, but there is also considerable pain associated with a lot of the rash. And particularly for patients who are presenting with mucosal lesions, those tend to be the most painful of the lesion. So like I mentioned, very um, severe pharyngitis with severe sore throat and patients presenting with inability to control um, uh, their, 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 their saliva and to swallow anything. And also patients presenting with such severe rectal pain that they require admission into hospital for pain management. Yeah, that was not on my radar. I, I did not realize pain was such a major component. And that it sounded like that was the main reason people were admitted to the hospital was just uncontrolled pain. And I guess in the case of pharyngeal, uh, they, they would maybe have trouble swallowing. Uh, I, I heard that was a big issue as well. Yes, absolutely. And when we mention pharyngeal cases, I think it's also important to highlight the fact that sometimes these can um, be complicated with bacterial superinfection. And at Cashlack Memorial, we have actually seen patients admitted with pharyngeal abscesses that were only diagnosed as monkeypox once the infectious diseases team uh, was consulted, took a history and thought about it and, and collected the sample and did the appropriate testing. So very important to, to sort of uh, keep this uh, in mind as well. Well, let me, so let me recap that the, the main, the contrasting between the two. So there was the, the classic presentation was there was a prodrome, then the rash, the, the incubation period tended to be longer and the rash tended to be more generalized when, when people got it, usually they had lymphadenopathy and the lesions, um, did you say the lesions all seem to be in the same stage in the stage classic presentation? Yes, yes. All seem to and be at the same it, stage of development. 
in the current in the current outbreak, they may or may not have a prodrome. The incubation period seems shorter, five to 12 days, uh, maybe seven days is, seems to be common. And then they could have singular lesions or just they don't have that generalized uh, lesion appearance necessarily. And, uh, and then we were talking about proctitis and the mucosal uh, lesions, uh, pharyngeal lesions or the lesions causing proctitis ha have been severely painful. So I guess the next thing I wanted to get to here is how are we going to test this person? You mentioned that you would test for co-infection. So can you be specific, like which labs would you order? And then tell us about how we would go about testing for monkeypox. Okay. So I would start by uh, talking a little bit about how we test um, for monkeypox. So like I mentioned at the beginning of our discussion, this is a DNA virus. And uh, when patients have lesions, a lot of these lesions are just teeming with virus. So they are shedding virus from these skin lesions or mucosal lesions if they have monkeypox. And in order to make the diagnosis, we have to collect swabs of virus DNA from these um, lesions and send them to um, the lab for basically what is a, a PCR test to detect that virus DNA. Now, some labs would, would implement a two-step testing where they do an initial generic uh, PCR test that would detect um, any orthopox virus. So these are other viruses that are of the same group as monkeypox, of the same uh, uh, virus group as, as monkeypox, but it's not specific test for monkeypox itself. And if that orthopox virus PCR is positive, then a confirmatory PCR is run, which is specific for monkeypox testing. Now, in the context of an outbreak, if the orthopox virus PCR is, is positive, that is considered a presumptive diagnosis of, of monkeypox while awaiting uh, the confirmation testing. So how does one collect the swab? I would say you collect the swab from the site where a patient has symptoms. Remember, I've mentioned uh, before that we are seeing a typical presentation. So some patients may not present with skin lesions that you're able to swab. They may just have the oral ulcers or have pharyngeal pain, or they may just be presenting with intensely painful rectal uh, uh, with, with intense rectal pain that makes you think about proctitis. If they have skin lesions, you collect the lesions using a dry swab, so a dry uh, cotton swab, a sterile dry cotton swab, and I would recommend using one swab per lesion. Normally, although the lesions are described as postular or vesicular in certain phases, they don't always contain a lot of fluid. So what I do when I collect these samples is you take a scalpel or uh, just to scrape the top of the lesion to make sure you're getting inside the lesion and then really vigorously swab the surface of the lesion to make sure that you're collecting enough virus DNA on that uh, on that swab. Now, depending on where you're testing, sending the testing sample to, if you're sending to a state laboratory, they may accept the dry swab. Some of the labs may require that you place that swab in virus transport media before you conduct that swab um, uh, to the lab laboratory. And make sure you collect swabs from at least two lesions if the patient has multiple lesions. And if they have symptoms elsewhere, 
collect a pharyngeal swab if they have pharyngeal symptoms and collect a rectal swab if they have rectal symptoms. Now, for rectal symptoms, because those are associated with a lot of pain, sometimes it's very difficult to get a proper sample. And what I do is I get the patients to self-collect because that way you're not causing more pain. And there's actually um, a publication that just came out this week. It's still in preprint. It's not been peer-reviewed yet, but that showed that self-collected swabs for monkeypox are just as good as provider-collected swabs. So you should feel quite confident. We already do it for other sexually transmissible infections. Are these, so for the, the proctitis lesions, if you can't see it, th this is all extra, they're just swabbing the rectum externally? They're just swabbing the rectum. They're just uh, uh, putting a swab into their rectum and turning it 360 degrees. I, I thought I had heard earlier that unroofing the lesions was not necessary. Is that something that has sort of changed in the... Recently, or it's maybe, I, not, maybe I just misremembered. Yeah, I, 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 the, the, the guidance, uh, actually, if you look at the CDC guidance, they say it's not necessary. But just based on the lesions that we've seen in the clinic, some of these lesions really are, some patients present at the stage of the lesion where you still see quite an epithelium ab above the lesion and you really have to scrape the top of it to get into the lesion to get to get to make sure you're sampling it properly so i i i would say this should be um a, a matter of clinical judgment if they're presenting with lesions that are already uh, ulcerated and are open then you don't need to unroof the lesions but if they're presenting with a, a, a papule that still has a healthy layer of that has a layer of skin on it, then you want to gently scrape the top of it so that you can get into the lesion and actually sample it properly. I see. And then I, I had the same back, question, Paul. <laughs> I, I was just going to say it just it just seems weird to be just swabbing like dry dry skin where you generally were told not to do that. Like we want some moisture on the swab. Like you want, you want the swab to be dirty when you're sending it off, Paul. That's, that's in most of the time. So that I, unroofing it makes sense to me, but. Yes. And, and unroofing it is the right thing to do. And you are absolutely correct, Matt. You do not want to send a, a swab that you can't visibly see what it is that you swabbed. So, so you do want to make sure that you're getting into the secretions in the lesion or at least getting uh, below the skin. It's not, on, it's not like doing surgery. This is really just gently scraping so that you can get into the lesion and get, make sure you get a good DNA sample. And then coming back to sort of the additional testing that you do, obviously, when people present with ulcers or papules and you're thinking about um, sexually transmissible infections, some of the other things that are on that differential that I would send for in this patient would obviously be an RPR to, to make sure I'm testing them for syphilis. And I will also collect swabs for um, uh, herpes simplex virus testing, as well as collect swabs for uh, chlamydia testing um, by, by DNA sampling because they can be presenting with LGV lesions or any of the other ulcerative um, STIs that we commonly identify in the clinic. So, And not to forget, in individuals who are presenting, unlike the patient in the case that we're talking about, who do not have a documented HIV status, remember to screen them 
for HIV. We have seen at Cashlack Memorial a new diagnosis of HIV that have been made in the context of a new diagnosis of monkeypox. So very important to remember to screen individuals who are presenting with any STI for the first time and don't have a documented HIV status. So we're going to, for the for the monkeypox part of this, we're going to be swabbing at least two lesions. And if they have multiple sites involved, let's say proctitis and pharyngitis, we would swab both those areas. Patients can self-swab, um, especially very painful areas. It seems like that's going to be a way to go, very patient-centered. And uh, we may need to gently unroof the lesion to make sure that we're sending a swab, getting a good sample. And then the other testing that we might send for if there's papular ulcerated lesions would be uh, uh, syphilis, swabbing for HSV or chlamydia by DNA um, in case we're in case um, it's you said LGV is present. Yes, mm-hmm. yes lymphogranuloma. And then and don't forget to test HIV. Yes. Yeah. Yep. I was forgetting the uh, I, was, I was forgetting the full term <laughs> terminology of it. All right. Uh, so, Paul, what's what's next for our patient here? So we we're we're sending off all this testing and and what's happening next? Well, I guess that that's I'm going to turn the question to Bahuma. So, what? How long does this testing usually take? I, I realize there's going to be some variation depending on sort of lab practices and sort of where you practice. But in general, how long are we waiting for results, and what should we be telling the patient in the meantime? Uh, normally, a PCR should have a pretty quick turnaround time and should not um, uh, take longer than 48 hours for you to get to get a result. Unfortunately, um, we're still sort of dealing with some issues and barriers around testing, probably which has to do just with the logistics of transmitting the sample to an outside facility and then getting those results back. So the mean time to getting testing results back is still anywhere between five days to up to seven days um, for a lot of uh, sites. All right. Well, let's say we have an extraordinarily efficient lab system at CashLag for a change. Um, and we get our results back a mere two days later, and the patient is positive for orthopox virus DNA. So what what do we do with this poor gentleman? Yes. So first of all, we start by counseling the patient and uh, providing reassurance about the fact that this is not a new disease, and uh, we are getting familiar with it, and we, we know how to manage it. So the first thing is a lot of patients with a new diagnosis of monkeypox also have a lot of anxiety um, kind of around whether they can pass it on to their family members and what they should be doing to sort of make sure that they're protecting themselves. So the first thing I start out with is always providing that counseling. Now, in terms of sort of what we can offer in, in uh in, uh, from a therapeutic standpoint, a lot of patients with monkeypox would recover just with supportive care. Um, so basically, uh, what you're, you're going to be doing for these patients is making sure that if they have fevers, you're treating that, you're making sure that they're staying hydrated properly, and you are controlling and treating their cutaneous symptoms. So for patients who have 
associated itching with these lesions. Um, you can certainly consider antihistamines to help deal with some of the uh, pruritus that can be associated with this. For those who are presenting with lots of pain associated to, with their lesions, uh, you can certainly use non-steroidal anti-inflammatory medications to help, help alleviate some of that pain. If the pain is severe, even consider uh, opiate-based um, medications to really uh, address some of the very painful syndromes. Now, in terms of patients who present with more severe disease, and by severe disease, we are generally thinking about patients that have greater than 10 uh, cutaneous lesions or who have lesions on mucosal surfaces, such as pharyngeal lesions or rectal lesions, or patients who are um, presenting uh, with complications of monkeypox, either bacterial superinfection and things like that, those are some of the patients that we would start to consider whether they would be an appropriate candidate for an antiviral medication. Now, it's important for the audience to be aware of the fact that the antiviral medications that we currently have available for monkeypox, we do not have randomized controlled clinical trial data on any of these medications. A lot of the medications we have basically, basically um, animal uh, data on, based on animal models of monkeypox, indicating some measure of efficacy and also in vitro data supporting that these medications may be efficacious. The first medication that I want to talk about is the antiviral drug uh, called tecoviramat. And this is a medication that acts by inhibiting an important protein um, in the replication cycle of the virus and so blocks the formation of new virion particles and sort of inhibits viral replication in that way. It is currently available in certain countries uh, through emergency use authorization um, processes, and we are offering it to patients who present with severe disease, um, uh, kind of as a way of hopefully reducing uh, the viral load and the viral replication with the goal being to shorten the course of that illness. It's given in a weight-based um, dosing. And uh, the duration of therapy is 14 days um, for the full course of, of um, uh, the, the treatment. And there is anecdotal, anecdotal evidence that some patients uh, report that they feel that they have fewer lesions emerging once they start using the medication or that they feel there's some alleviation in terms of their symptoms. But again, without a randomized controlled trial, one can't really say whether this is the natural course of the disease itself or really an effect of the medication. Fortunately, there are multiple clinical trials right now recruiting, and hopefully we would get um, additional information on um, uh, some of these studies um, to really tell us what the utility of this medication is. Paul, I believe uh, I believe the STOMP trial is going on, and I, I think yeah, I think that's I think that's the Tukaviramat trial that's going on in the U.S. and um, maybe a platform trial, Paul. So you know, just uh, what do you think? How do you rate them as a trial head, Paul? What do you think? I, I get weak. I mean, again, the, the cardiologists, I feel like, just have his beat in almost every domain. And that I stomp doesn't even, <laughs> it, it doesn't even make sense. I did want to ask, in terms of the administration, did I recall there's like some like dietary considerations too? I feel like in one of the quick fact sheets I saw, like we're 
they have to eat a certain way while the, or it's recommended to eat a certain way, I should say, while you're Yeah, while it you're is. Um, the medication is, is better absorbed with food. And actually, a fatty rich meal um, would, would help with, with absorption of the medication. And now that we're talking about uh, the dietary considerations, I think it's a good time also to mention some of the common adverse effects that are um, associated with the medication. Some patients do complain about nausea. Um, or abdominal pain, and a few patients have reported headaches um, while taking the medication. But overall, it is really well tolerated, and very few patients have had to discontinue because they had um, such bad um, side effects. Now, before we continue, there are two other antivirals that we can talk about. Do you guys want me to talk about those or not? Absolutely. Because they would yeah. <laughs> they would really be, you would need ID involved to get any of them prescribed, but they are antivirals. It's up to you guys. I'm oh, sure. <laughs> so. I, I certainly don't mind making more work for ID. I mean, that's, that's, that's what we have you for. So yeah, by all means, okay. I'd, I'd love to hear what's on the horizon. <laughs> right. So there are other antivirals that could be considered for the treatment of uh, monkeypox. The second antiviral that can be considered is a medication called brincidofavir, which is a um, uh, of the same sort of class and uh, a prodrug of the medication, sidofavir. Both of them um, act by inhibiting um, DNA synthesis. And they are uh, medications that have been used to treat um, other DNA viruses as well. Now, brincidofavir has um, FDA approval for treatment of, of smallpox and can also be used for treatment of other orthopox viruses. It is orally bioavailable and um, it's usually uh, prescribed by infectious diseases uh, doctors. So if you're considering brincidofavir, then I'm assuming that your patient would have gotten an infectious diseases uh, consult at some point uh, to be considered for this medication. Much like with tecoviramat, uh, we do not have randomized controlled trials in humans um, uh, assessing its efficacy for the treatment of, of monkeypox. But an important consideration to remember if your patient is going to receive brincidofavir is that there are um, uh, teratogenic effects that are well documented in the animal studies that have been done with this medication. And there are also considerations that have to be made for male fertility if you're prescribing this to a male patient, because that could also have an impact that you would have to consider if it, for a certain number of of months after the patient discontinues the the medication. So ensuring that you're counseling your patients properly before you prescribe these medications. The most common adverse effect is uh, association with elevation of uh, liver enzymes, which in certain cases have led to the medication being discontinued. So an important thing to monitor if you do get your hands on brincidofavir and that is something that your patient ends up being prescribed for their monkeypox treatment. Now, sidofavir, as I mentioned, brisidofavir is the oral formulation and it's the prodrug of sidofavir. Sidofavir is available in topical formulation and it's also available in, in IV formulation. It tends to be very nephrotoxic and has to be co-administered with probenicid to reduce some of that nephrotoxicity. Again, it's only a medication that you would be considering after discussing this with infectious diseases experts. It has spectrum and activity against orthopox viruses, but also no randomized controlled trials really informing us of how beneficial it is in the treatment of monkeypox. It's given as an IV infusion once a 
week for two weeks. And brinzidofavir is also given in oral formulation once a week for two weeks. So those are the, the antiviral drugs that we do have available for treatment. Tocaviramat is... It's IV or oral formulation, is it that It has correct? both IV and, and oral formulations, yeah, correct. Okay, I, before, I, so that's that's helpful. It's nice to hear there are treatments that will not be coming from me, so that's wonderful. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so I, I did want to touch on something. In, in the stem of the question, we, we had talked about um, the patient is living with HIV but is undetectable, so untransmissible. I, I guess I'm wondering, does HIV status impact... Um, I guess, diagnosis, and then I think at, since we're at management, would that change sort of any ways that you might actually treat this patient just sort of given this HIV status? Well, what we know, again, from the emerging epidemiology and the ongoing outbreak is that there is quite a very strong emerging association uh, between individuals who are testing positive for uh, monkeypox and having a diagnosis or an existing diagnosis of HIV. Actually, in the U.S., 38% of people who have uh, been diagnosed with monkeypox also happen to be people uh, with HIV. And we're still trying to sort of understand um, what is sort of driving this very strong association? Is it just a reflection of uh, similar risk exposures that are making these two infections track quite closely together? Or is there something about living with HIV and being immunocompromised that may predispose these individuals to having a higher chance of acquiring uh, monkeypox if they are exposed to the virus? And that aspect is still sort of um, an area where um, we need more research to sort of tease that out. Now, in terms of management, in our case, the patient has HIV that is well controlled. So I'm assuming that their CD4 counts are above 500 and they have an undetectable viral load, and they are taking their ARVs properly. In these scenarios, I would manage them exactly in the same manner as an individual who did not have HIV, because we know from um, cohorts that have reported on individuals with HIV who've tested positive for monkeypox, that the outcomes were pretty much similar in individuals who had well-controlled HIV compared to the HIV-negative population. Now, coming back to HIV uh, in individuals who are more immunocompromised, so I'm thinking about that individual who is not an antiretroviral therapy or struggles to take their medications and has a very profoundly depleted CD4 count and a detectable viral load. There has historically been um, reports that have demonstrated that this particular category of patients are at a higher risk for more severe and disseminated um, infections from monkeypox and also at a higher risk uh, for complications. And we are also beginning to see this in our practice at Cashlack Memorial, where we have had to see um, lots of other people with HIV and AIDS who have presented with monkeypox and have required hospital admission because they've presented with more severe um, infections um, than individuals who do not have HIV or have presented with complications as well. And in the report recently published um, by the CDC looking at almost 4,000 cases of um, monkeypox in the U.S., in that particular cohort, they also reported higher rates of hospitalization among people with HIV compared to people who do not have HIV. So again, emerging data that there may be some uh, 
more severe disease considerations in this patient population. In terms of what we offer for treatment, certainly this would be someone that we would be considering for an antiviral drug like ticaviramat, because you're really trying to make sure that you're controlling uh, viral replication. And as I mentioned before, all the good supportive care things that we've talked about. So making sure that we're caring for the skin properly, using skin protectants where indicated, thinking about petroleum jelly that protects and adds a layer on the skin and also um, thinking about the insensitive losses that can happen when someone has multiple skin lesions and really treating these patients almost like burn patients, like making sure they're properly hydrated, etc. And when they present with bacterial superinfection, um, really considering um, uh, the necessity of adding antimicrobials to treat any additional uh, bacterial superinfection that may be further complicating their case. And of course, because they have AIDS and HIV, having a conversation with um, your infectious diseases physicians as to whether it's appropriate to initiate antiretroviral therapy and treat their HIV as well. In terms of other supportive management, so you talked about sort of um like barrier ointments like Vaseline and, and maintaining hydration and analgesia and that kind of stuff. For the pruritus, what, what is the current thinking about sort of, you mentioned antihistamines for that before, I think. What about topical steroids? Good idea, bad idea? I think that in this case, uh, topical steroids are not a good idea at all uh, because they actually would impede on the ability of the skin that is that has the lesion to heal properly. It, it thins the skin. It's really bad for skin healing. So it's not something that we should be using uh, for this patient. And another question that I get frequently as well is for patients with proctitis, whether there's any role for using sort of um, enema-based or oh, sure. suppository-based preparations of steroids. I also strongly discourage against that because you're thinking again about a mucosa that is irritated and putting in steroids in there would not only promote viral replication, but would also impede on the healing. Things that could work well in, in patients who have a lot of inflammation and a lot of pain, we have found in our experience, and this is expert opinion, that um, using IV non-steroidal uh, anti-inflammatories can be very helpful in decreasing um, that inflammation. And also thinking about using uh, alternative local anti-inflammatory agents such like mesalamine uh, suppositories can also really have a very good anti-inflammatory effect locally and avoiding the use of steroids. So these are some of the things that people can, can consider um, uh, as ways in which to address that really severe pain that's associated with proctitis and also not forgetting lidocaine-based preparations for patients who have um, perineal lesions, thinking about sitz baths and things that improve vascular circulation and really just ease the pain by, um, by virtue of the fact that you're using um, uh, kind of like a, a a sort of a warm, uh, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm spacing out on the word, but, you know, using warm water to, as a sits bath, that can have a soothing effect on the perineum. That's what I'm trying to say. Outside the antivirals, which we talked about, a lot of the treatments are in our wheelhouse, which is like if it's if it's mild, maybe we can get by with some antihistamine, antihistamines and some NSAIDs. Uh, if it's if if the pain's more severe, in some cases, opioids may be okay. As far as mucosal treatment, we just talked about sits baths, 
We talked about uh, lidocaine preparations um, that may be appropriate. And then IV NSAIDs seem to help maybe with inflammation and pain as well if patients are on the more severe side of things. Uh, even mesalamine suppositories are being experimented with as an anti-inflammatory. And then the antivirals, to, uh, uh, Tecaviramat was the, one of the ones that's available oral or IV, and then there's Brin, Cytophavir, and Cytophavir. Uh, we're going to be having ID involved probably for all of those agents, at least in the near term, um, because I, I imagine most most people listening don't have familiarity with them. I think the next the next curveball that we wanted to throw you was if our patient was a pregnant woman with genital lesions, wh- how would that change our management here? Right. If this was a pregnant uh, woman who presented with genital lesions and she did have um, exposures that make me worried that this genital lesions may be associated with an STI, obviously I would still have monkeypox on my differential and I would do um, the screening sort of how we have described in terms of screening her both for monkeypox and for um, other uh, sexually transmissible infections. Now, with regards to the management as pertains to a pregnant woman, I mentioned before that two of the antivirals that we do have at our disposal have teratogenic effects. So a pregnant woman with monkeypox will not qualify for brinsidofovir or sidofovir. Now, in terms of ticoviramat, there is no evidence of teratogenicity in mice, but we also do not have enough human data, and that would have to be a decision that would have to be shared between the patient and an expert consultant to weigh the risk and benefits of providing antiviral in that scenario. Now, pregnancy is considered an immunosuppressed state, so that would qualify for consideration for an antiviral treatment uh, for this pregnant person if they were confirmed as having um, uh, monkeypox. Now, if this uh, pregnant person says, I don't want to have ticoviramat because there's no data, what are some of the other things that we could consider? There's vaccinia immunoglobulin, which is essentially antibodies that are collected from individuals who have received smallpox vaccination and can be used as passive immunity um, for individuals with severe orthopox virus infections. Now, we don't have data on whether it's effective for treatment of monkeypox or not, but it's again one of those therapeutics that is in the realm of things that we can consider for immunocompromised hosts that we cannot offer antivirals to or who need some form of treatment, but we're running out of ideas on what we can offer. And again, that would need an expert consult and a risk-benefit conversation to make some of those decisions. Now, if this pregnant woman had an exposure to someone with monkeypox, but she did not have any lesions and she showed up in the clinic and she was worried because her roommate uh, has tested positive for monkeypox and they share the same bed because it's a really tight apartment and she has no lesions, what could be considered for this patient is post-exposure prophylaxis with vaccination. And that brings us to um, or gives us the opportunity to talk about some of the vaccines that are currently available and being used both as pre-exposure prevention and post-exposure prophylaxis for monkeypox. So the monkeypox vaccines that are available are really vaccines that were developed for 
smallpox. And we're able to use these vaccines because orthopox viruses share a feature of immune cross-protection or immune cross-reactivity. And this just means that if you've been infected with one virus of the orthopox genus, if you encounter another virus of that same class, then the immunity you gained from your exposure to another orthopox virus would give you some protection against other orthopox viruses. There are two vaccines currently available, and they are all based on a vaccinia virus, which is another orthopox virus, which is not as virulent as variola or as smallpox. Uh, we have an inactivated form of, um, of vaccinia, which is a, 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 a vaccinia virus that is not replication competent, but it is a live vaccine. And this particular vaccine can be used in immunocompromised individuals. And for this patient, she would be able to get um, uh, an inactivated vaccine as post-exposure uh, prophylaxis if she had a credible high-risk exposure to someone with monkeypox. Now, the modified um, attenuated life vaccine is given in two doses, and those doses are spaced uh, 28 days apart. It is a subcutaneous um, vaccine, although it can also be given intradermally, and in that case, we use a fifth of the dose to administer intradermally. So that would be something that I would consider for someone who was exposed but didn't have lesions yet. And we are hoping that if you immunize them within four days of their exposure, then they can develop enough of an antibody response that they essentially catch up with that long incubation period and prevent the virus replication from actually causing um, an infection. And even if the pers person develops an infection, then you're also hoping that it would not be quite as severe as someone who had no antibodies already present to orthopox mm. viruses. And then that brings us to the second vaccine. You want me to launch into that or you want to ask a, a question? No, I think we can. I think we can launch into the second vaccine. So the first okay. one was the attenuated. It was the inactivated vaccine. The right? inactivated Not a vaccine. vaccine. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then the second, the second uh, uh, option that we have for. Um, vaccines is a live vaccine. These are not attenuated. They are replication competent vaccines and they contain the vaccinia virus. And they are administered um, with a special needle uh, that's called a bifurcated needle, uh, which essentially um, allows the person administering the vaccine to make little puncture marks on the skin and inoculate the virus into the upper layer of the skin. So what you're doing is making 10 to 15 puncture marks and actually inoculating a live virus vaccine into the skin. And that area of the skin forms a pox. It forms what we call a vaccine take, which is a local infection in the skin. And that infection triggers an antibody response that is then protective. I know this may sound a little bit barbaric to the people listening is that to scarification. Because <laughs> it is I was a scarification technique and was yeah. used in the kind of latter days for of the eradication of smallpox. So a lot of people who got vaccinated for smallpox are quite familiar with uh, the scarification and the fact that it can leave um, a scar. Can't argue with results, Paul. <laughs> yeah, this this feels like Edward Jenner level stuff. But I mean, I'm, I'm glad I'm glad that we have something. But that is wild. 
I'm not sure if we're going to be using the video for this one, Paul, but uh, Paul's cat is on his chair behind his head right now. Uh, just, I, I had to mention that. Bahuma, Paul's cat records with us most weeks. Yeah, he's a usual fixture. He's very smart. Yeah. And I, I think that important things for... Um, providers to remember about live vaccines is that they are completely contraindicated in people who are immunocompromised uh, because they are replication competent and can actually cause disseminated vaccinia infections in individuals who do not have a competent immune system. And also after vaccination, individuals have to cover the, the vaccination site, because that site, remember, has replication competent uh, oh, uh, virus. Yes. And you can actually transmit vaccine virus to other people if you don't protect your vaccine site appropriately. So um, this is a vaccine that has a single administration. It's not dual administered like the modified um, uh, inactivated vaccine. And both vaccines have been compared in a phase three trial and have been found to um, generate uh, equivalent antibody level responses. Bahuma, it seemed like this virus, there was a couple contraindications for, or sorry, the vaccine for the live one that if people had like really bad eczema, pregnancy, um, a, a lot of cardiovascular disease, then maybe that wouldn't be the one for them. It seemed like this one had more adverse events than the the, the inactivated virus. That is completely correct, um, Matt, because the live vaccine is actually um, a second generation smallpox um, vaccine. And these live vaccines have been very well described to be associated with more severe and significant adverse effects. Notably, myocarditis has been one of the, the adverse effects that has been a concern with um, the live um, replication competent vaccines. And in individuals who have pre-existing skin conditions like eczema or atopic dermatitis, they can develop a complication from these live vaccines that we call eczema vaccinatum, which essentially is just a disseminated cutaneous infection with vaccinia. And in these individuals, Jeez. having an existing skin condition like that would be an absolute contraindication to getting a live vaccinia vaccine. I don't want to go too far down this rabbit hole, but are we worried that like giving the smallpox vaccine where there's like replication, like are we going to, is smallpox going to like come back because of this? That's, that's. It, well, it we, the, the, the like, virus in the vaccine is vaccinia and the virus that causes smallpox is variola. So vaccinia so is okay. a much milder orthopox virus that really doesn't cause severe infections, even when those infections happen. So far as you're administering it to individuals who are immunocompetent, remember, smallpox was eradicated using vaccinia-based uh, uh, vaccines. And yeah. these vaccines were given to millions of people around the world and only became discontinued towards the, the end of the eradication process where it was obvious that it was riskier to be vaccinating 100 million people to prevent a single case of smallpox that was becoming vanishingly rare, as opposed to not vaccinating and really just targeting the pockets of residual smallpox that still existed around the world. Well, Paul, I, I think we might be at the end of this one. What do you think? I, I think we've done hero's work as per usual. Um, I would like to know, 
Uh, Bahuma, if you have any any sort of final thoughts or summary statements that we should really, what should we be taking away from this episode specifically that is the most critical thing for, let's just say, the general internist to know that as we're starting to think and worry more about monkeypox? I think that uh, the point that I would like to drive across is that although we've sort of seen the case numbers level off and even start to decline in a lot of places, we are still quite far from elimination and uh, eradication is going to be challenging. So I really want the general internists to sort of think about monkeypox as something that they're likely to encounter in their practice, either, you know, um, in their clinical practice when they screen patients for um, STIs or think about viral exanthems, or if they're in the hospital medicine side, may have to care for a patient who's admitted with one of the complications of monkeypox. So the take-home message would be, be aware that we are in an outbreak. And I think it's important to know the many varied uh, presentations of the virus and to be proactive about testing. If you don't think about it, you're not going to test it. And if you don't test for it, you're going to miss it. And lastly, also be aware of what the risk factors are and know to recommend the vaccines um, to your patients who may meet some of these risk uh, criteria. Because for once, we're dealing with an outbreak of an infectious disease for which we do have um, vaccines available. So prevention is always better than cure. If we vaccinate the highest risk group individuals, then we stand a better chance of making sure that this doesn't spread and become a bigger problem than it already is. And I'll stop with that. This has been another episode of The Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Yummy. It's just me and you, buddy. Uh, get-, <laughs> <laughs> get your show notes at thecurbsiders.com. And while you're there, sign up for our mailing list to get our weekly show notes in your inbox. Plus, twice each month, you'll get our Curbsiders Digest, recapping the latest practice-changing articles, guidelines, and news in internal medicine. And we're committed to high-value, practice-changing knowledge. And to do that, we want your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify. You can also send an email to askcurbsiders at gmail.com. A reminder that this and most episodes are available for CME at VCU Health at through VCU Health at curbsiders.vcuhealth.org. I wanted to give a special thanks to Dr. Paul Williams for helping to write and produce this episode and to the team at PodPaste who helps to produce and edit our show. Elizabeth Proto runs our social media. Stuart Brigham composed our theme music. And with all that, Paul, until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Watto. And as always, our main Dr. Paul Nelson Williams, thank you and goodbye.